Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Success Story. I'm your host, Scott Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. HubSpot has been a huge supporter of the show. They have so many tools that can help your business. The one that I want to just mention today, so you go check it out, is their new AI chatbot. It's called Campaign Assistant, and it's a totally free-to-use AI tool made for marketers and business leaders who spend hours a day on content creation. Campaign Assistant will transform the way you build marketing campaigns at scale. Craft personalized emails, ads, and landing pages in a matter of minutes. Just pick the content type, add key selling points, and let AI take it from there. It works seamlessly with all of HubSpot's marketing and sales tools to scale your output across email, social, and more. So AI your way to your most effective campaigns yet at HubSpot.com slash campaign dash assistant. I first got interested in investigative journalism as a product of being a news junkie. Uh, I thought journalism sounded like a fascinating line of work to be in. And I was fortunate enough to get to uh, intern and later work for a small wire service based in uh, out of their DC bureau called Interpress Service. Part of my job there was to cover think tanks, um, which sounds incredibly boring and wonky and uh, I guess aspects of it are. Uh, and the thing that maybe I was bored at a lot of these events and I started to look around and see that, you know, the buildings that these think tanks were in were really nice and they had a lot of expensive catered food and they seemed to be paying a lot of their employees a lot of money. And they had the names of uh, billionaires and major Fortune 500 corporations on plaques and and naming their conference centers after uh, companies and individuals with a lot of resources. And I started to wonder, how is, what's the economics of all this? How is this all put together? And I quickly learned that that's not a question you're really supposed to ask. You're just sort of supposed to swim in that, you know, in that golden trough or whatever it is and enjoy the, uh, the perks and not ask too many questions about how all of this is put together and maybe even whose interests are being uh, represented. And if you can, just... Describe describe what a think tank is for people who don't quite understand that concept because people may not have ever experienced this before or really understood sure. how this world so works. So one interesting thing about think tanks that people always assume is, first of all, that there is a definition and that there is such a legal thing as a think tank. There is no such thing as the legal entity of a think tank. But a lot of research institutions in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere, usually in capitals around the world, um, are independent entities that conduct policy research. Um, and to be clear... The audience, uh, the intended audience for this research um, is really generally not the general public. It's policymakers. Uh, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I, I work at a think tank now. I'm, 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 I will defend that. Uh, but it's not academic research. You're doing it because uh, you're trying to come up with policy solutions for policymakers to implement. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a way that one tries to inject ideas and policies into the policymaking process. Okay. No, that makes sense. Okay. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your story. I just wanted yeah, to understand absolutely. what that was. Um, and yeah, the more I started looking at it and I, and I was you know reporting on foreign policy and I could very clearly see that a number of institutions in Washington, D.C. where I was were, uh, you know, had a very outsized influence in the foreign policy debate. Uh, they seemed to be generating a lot of the analysis and policy proposals and would then appear before Congress as witnesses 
that um, were clearly being implemented as, as policy. And I started to report more and more on who was funding these entities and who was trying to shape the foreign policy debate. And I think the thing that I, I always come back to with the foreign policy debate is that you know people think of it as very exotic. Um, you know that foreign policy is maybe above normal politics in some ways. You know, politics ends at the water's edge or something. Very complex. And the more I looked at it, the more I was realizing, you know, it's not that it's not different than any other contested policy space, at least in American politics, and probably in 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 contested politics anywhere in the world. Um, you know, that there's interests, there's private interests, there's public interests, there's foreign interests, um, and they're all competing. The only difference is that we don't talk about it. <laughs> Uh, we don't talk about it yeah. in the same way. We pretend that this is uh, somehow just a very fair and pure competition of ideas and that everybody wants the same outcome. Um, and if you walked into uh, uh, a room where you had people, let's say, uh, abortion or same-sex marriage or environmental protection uh, of people who are on opposite ends of the debate and said, hey, guys, I assume you all want the same outcome, they would laugh at you. <laughs> uh of course, of course, yeah. Silly would, and disingenuous guess... place to start the discussion, right? You guys want different outcomes. It's okay. Right. <laughs> it's all right. Yeah, exactly. But that's how that's how it works. So I guess the whole point is, you know, you're you hope that the policy decisions are that are implemented are done by somebody that represents you and represents your country and you feel that they're you know, they're they they've reached a level in, in their aptitude that they can make those smart decisions. And you under, I think everybody understands that there's gonna be money that are funding op opposing ideas constantly. You just hope that there's enough money funding both sides, and then you come to an educated idea after the data and the exactly, facts are presented. Exactly, and I think part of that is is to you know, and again in other policy spaces, I think we talk about it very openly that there's dark money, there's influences, people want different outcomes. Um, we we have a pretty good conversation about that. And foreign policy, I don't think that we do. Um, and I think it's really you know it's it's, it's harmful to 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 the United States and probably to other countries as well that we aren't having you know a, a more uh, honest conversation about. The fact that this is a debate that has people that want different outcomes, and some of those interests are, um, you know, serving a very narrow group of people or even other countries, um, and you know that's okay. But we should at least be having a conversation about it. And that's what that's sort of prompted your career path. That's why yeah. you started to focus on some of these. So some of these foreign policy focused think tanks. So you mm -hmm. have on both sides people putting money into, try, and what are they trying to solve for? Like, it, obviously, foreign policy is immense and massive. So there must be some topics that are uh, probably more prevalent than others, or is it just, there's a think tank for literally every conversation, every different problem that's being trying to solve, that, that, that the U.S. wants to have a hand in, at least influencing some way? Well, you know, I think that the diversity of think tanks and of ideas inside the beltway for, for, you know, to narrow the scope a little bit, it's far more limited than um, most people would think. Um, and, and, and this kind of goes back to my area of interest in my area of reporting that, you know, there really is a, something called the so-called blob, which is what uh, Benjamin Rhodes referred to as the, um, you know, sort of the foreign policy establishment. And, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, it's politicians, it's, but it's a lot of people who are these analysts at think tanks, um, and they sort of police. What are the acceptable uh, uh, policy lines to take? What are the acceptable objectives that we're trying to pursue? And the more closely I look at it, the more I, I've seen, and I've written about this extensively, that it's also kind of the same set of funders throughout. Mm -hmm. You know, the weapons companies are major funders of, uh, of think tanks that work on foreign policy. So are uh, a small set of foreign countries, uh, the United, United Arab Emirates, Taiwan, Norway, Japan, are some of the big foreign funders of think tanks. And they don't just fund one think tank. Um, they don't just fund uh, progressive or liberal think tanks and cons or a conservative think tank. They'll wanna fund across the spectrum. And I don't think it's that big of a coincidence then that you don't see uh, an enormous array of, of policy ideas coming out, let alone policies that may question the US relationship with let's say uh, autocratic countries like the United Arab Emirates or quite serious questioning of um, the size of the defense budget or about whether we need certain weapon systems that are incredibly expensive. Um, those are the types of conversations that it seems like the, the conversation around that is very constrained. Interesting. So it's it's almost like if you have certain entities that fund both sides, then, then you're never going to have a discussion around a certain policy that could actually negatively impact uh, that entity. But you're going to have 
seemingly an un, seemingly like a perceived unbiased view or a, an unbiased donation towards think tanks because it seems like well we're we're funding uh, progressive uh, liberal and conservative and Republican ideas. So how can you say that we've ever been biased? Exactly. Because they're funding both sides. But, okay, but I, there's a, this other... I, I love wrapping my head around this because this is net new to me. <laughs> but, so I'm like but there's completely layman. There's this, this interesting quality here that, you know, is, you know, in journalism or in academia, there's kind of some rudimentary concepts of uh, a conflict of interest avoidance, um, yeah. you know, which are common sense stuff. Like, you know, let's say one of your funders may stand to benefit from the work that you're doing or the argument you're making. You would proactively disclose that, and you know, academic journals talk about doing it. Journal newspapers talk about this. It doesn't mean you can't publish it. it doesn't mean you can't make that argument. Um, that's not what it doesn't even mean. That there's anything corrupt going on. It just means that to protect yourself, you proactively yeah. say, "Hey, you know, there's this financial link over here," um, and that's usually considered a very positive, but also a common sense thing. It basically doesn't exist in Washington. Uh, and I've looked very closely at it and sort of in the foreign policy realm, you know, regularly you'll see think tanks publishing materials that are beneficial to, let's say, one of their foreign government funders um, that's urging closer relations between the United States and that country. It doesn't mean it's a bad argument. It doesn't mean it's wrong. But there is something deeply flawed with a, uh, you know, a set of standards that, that seem to say that you don't need to to disclose a potential conflict of interest like that. And that obviously extends in a major way to the weapons companies that are funding course, a lot yeah. of the foreign policy research in Washington. And, and and candidly, like I'm just thinking through like the reason why this would be why you protect yourself is because if that's, if this ever came to light, then obviously your argument or your or your policy is discredited immediately. But you're saying the issue is that there's not enough conversation. So this stuff doesn't really come to exactly, light. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're a couple steps ahead of me there. Yeah. The, the fact is okay. the conversation isn't there. <laughs> the scrutiny isn't there. And as a result, some simple standards that <clears throat> excuse me, that are really, really you know rudimentary and that people get their heads around in academia or in journalism just don't exist. They get thrown out the window. You know, I asked a major think tank without naming names here. Um, I have a couple times asked them because I've seen them doing things that are beneficial to their funders. And I've said, do you guys have a conflict of interest policy? And they said, yeah, absolutely. And I said, well, can I see it? And they said, yeah, yeah, sure, we'll send it over. And they send it over. And it, it's a really good in-depth policy dictating how to avoid conflicts of interest between outside work and work being done for the think tank by employees of the think tank. <laughs> but it never crossed their minds that there could be a potential conflict of interest between the funders of the think tank and the work that they're producing. <laughs> I mean, it's kind yeah. of amazing that they were several steps ahead and they hadn't even thought about a more rudimentary one. So this is this is your passion now. This is what you've gotten. And so <laughs> when you start to when you start to go into this world, um, where do you decide to spend your time? What what drives you to look at one thing versus another? And also, how do you immerse yourself in this world so that you can investigate on something that seems to be dis that seems to have no discussion around it? Well, I think that that's that's a large part of it. And having, frankly, a, a lot of people who 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 help flag these things to me, you know, and say, hey, there's something interesting going on here. Because I, I don't I don't pretend to be an expert. Let's say on you know uh, the 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 debate over the how or if there should be an end to the Korean War. But um, you know, people have 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 assisted me in being like, hey, there's something going on here. There seems to be, you know, a flood of money um, mm -hmm. that is pushing, you know, in a certain direction, and no one's talking about it. And I am amazed by how often that happens. You know, normally if there was, you know, a massive sort of dark money, for lack of a better term, campaign towards uh, a, a contested policy issue. There would be, uh, you know, some questions, and other investigative journalists would would dig into it. And I think in foreign policy, um, again, it's sort of seen as elite. It's seen as also maybe not something that it's expected that that, that everyday people are supposed to be paying attention to or engaged with. And I think just a lot more flies under the radar, for lack of a better term. And as an investigative mm -hmm. journalist, I, I the, the the crudest way of putting it, but I think it is also true, is that it is a very target-rich environment, because. There's not that many people covering it with a high degree of scrutiny. And as a result, people act in incredibly brazen ways. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what did you, that makes, it, it's unfortunate. It's not right, but it's, it's not unexpected, I guess. Yeah. If yeah, really no uh, one's looking at yeah, it. It's, yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's, there's a push pull to this, you know, when there's more scrutiny, I think people generally behave better. <laughs> Um, when there's less scrutiny, 
they don't have to think about it. It's not even that they go out there saying, I want to be, I want to do things unethically, but you just don't have to put a lot of They don't give it a second thought. Yeah. They don't give it, at best, they don't give it a second thought. At worst, they do purposefully act unethically and knowingly, but that's sort of the, that's sort of the gamut of, of an unscrutinized and, and heavily financed um arena like that's so as you okay so as you go into this um this particular story what was the first what was the 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 point that sort of pushed you or the information or the lack of a better word I'm, I'm not a journalist so the tip that pointed you in this direction to start to look more into this yeah well i think the thing that the, there was sort of the, the first step to be there was definitely a first step here which is that I had colleagues that were flagging that there was this really expensive ad campaign or what appeared to be very expensive involving, you know, video billboards in Times Square and uh, newspaper advertisements um, attacking, um, well, I mean, the Korean president Moon, Moon Jae-in uh, and the members of the U.S. Congress who had been trying to, um, excuse me, in the case of President Moon, he'd been you know, talking about sort of what end of Korean War may look like. And in the case of the U.S. Congress, it was some very specific uh, legislation, HR three four four six, and I think it was resolution uh, another one eight two six, which were pretty innocuous pieces of legislation. That's what really jumped out. Um, th- th- this was proposed legislation that would have like one of them would have essentially asked uh, the State Department to explore what what a kind of war situation might look like. You know, explore you know what diplomatic engagement with North Korea. Um, in pursuit of a binding peace agreement is what the language that it used would would look like. You know, that, that's all. Sort of ex- explore that. Something that it's a 70-year war. Why are we not pursuing why that? Not? It makes perfectly yeah. good sense. There's 30,000 Americans still deployed uh, in South Korea, to the, mostly to the DMZ. Um, why not uh, pursue that? The other legislation was even more innocuous. It was, I think it was called the Divided Family Reunification Act. And it, it just essentially said the United States government should prioritize uh, efforts to, 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 for there to be meetings between, uh, I guess, Korean Americans and, uh, and, and their family members in North Korea, potentially just over video, you know, via Zoom or something. Um, stuff that I, I can't imagine really finding this to be uh, at all offensive. Um, and as I looked at this story, I was like, well, you know, who, who would possibly put in Times Square billboards about this? Um, you know, someone who's pretty passionate. Somebody's about pretty passionate. This particular topic. Money. Yeah. Um, and, and what is this? And 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 th- and then the next two steps really um, made me really think I was on that there was something here, which was seeing that. Well, for starters, it was um, there were sort of two sponsors of this. One was called the One Korea Network, which I had never heard of before. Uh, and I went and looked, and they have this website, and it's just chock full of conspiracy theories. Um, mm. A lot of them attacking sort of leftists in South Korea, but also um, being very, very, very pro-Trump, attacking people on the left in the United States, and and promoting election conspiracy theories, both in South Korea and uh, and in, in the United States. Um, and the other co-sponsor was something called KCPAC, which was the Korean Conservative Political Action Conference, um, which was an offshoot of a very well-known uh, um, conservative group here in the United States called the called CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. Uh, which holds an annual conference in Washington. I was like, well, why is there a Korean version of this? Um, and then the more I sort of dug into this, the more it became clear that you know all of this came back to one woman um, who had founded both One Korea Network, and I think it was the chair of both One Korea Network and of um, uh, KCPAC, and her name was Annie M.H. Chan. Um, she was a very, very wealthy woman living in Honolulu, who had uh, it sold, bought and sold very expensive properties in Hawaii as well as in California. And she and her then husband back in California had uh, over the past several decades been in and out of various technology related businesses uh, and had clearly accumulated you know, a, a fortune that runs into the hundreds of millions of dollars. And okay, that's interesting, but I was like, yeah, clearly you know, she, she must not Maybe she just sort of is in the background here. It's still, it's still not adding up, though. It's still I... not to, like I'm sure there's like a thread that runs between all this, but it still doesn't make sense to me why, because um, you know you said uh, KCPAC and CPAC and and right wing and and somebody's associated with with conspiracy theories. It still doesn't make sense to me, and you'll get to that I'm sure in a second. How this all ties back to like North Korea, South Korea, and bills that really 
don't do anything net negative for anyone. Like it's all net positive. Like I don't understand why somebody on the right or the right. left would be against Zoom calls with family members and it doesn't make sense, right? Well, first I'll give you the most sort of innocent, innocuous explanation, which is I actually think that she genuinely believes this stuff. Uh, you know, I've seen a letter that she wrote to Donald Trump. Um, I've seen things she signed on to, reports she signed on to that, you know, she very much believes that there is a vast conspiracy involving uh, 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 Chinese and North Korean agents inside the United States and in South Korea who are perpetrating acts of election fraud to uh, fundamentally undermine both South Korea and the United States so they can be overrun by, by the Chinese and the North Koreans, um, which, I mean, I, I guess one's entitled to hold that view. I don't think there's a lot of evidence to support it. Um, the thing that things get a little more concerning when um, I started to look at some of her business interests. And she was involved in something called uh, IP3 International, which was a, uh, a civilian nuclear firm based here in the United States that was uh, involved a few years ago in a rather sketchy effort to try to export uh, a sensitive civilian nuclear technology to Saudi Arabia. It was blocked. It was a scandal. Mike Flynn was involved. Um, and they had pivoted since then towards trying to uh, build up a business, continuing to export civilian nuclear technology, but justifying the proliferation of these small reactors on the basis that if they're that in a world with great power competition, where the United States is challenged by China and Russia, that uh, energy is going to be a component of this competition. And the only way to compete is to uh, approve the export of these sensitive technologies to Europe and to the Middle East. Uh, technologies which, incidentally, uh, South Korea has quite a bit of as well. And they were going to do this in partnership with South Korean um, uh, uh, nuclear power firms. So there is a profit dimension to what she was doing, or at least it appears that way, where she was saying, you know, the, South, the Chinese are coming to get us, the North Koreans are coming to get us. Um, and at one level, it's, you know, is, this is purely philanthropic, her interests, and she's funding these, a news outlet that's publishing, you know, basically fake news, just outlandish conspiracy theories about the elections. Um, she's publishing reports um, alongside really conspiracy theory oriented organizations in Washington that were talking about election fraud in the, in the, the 2020 election that, again, are totally baseless. Um, and in the other, over here, then she's engaged in being involved in a company that says it's going to profit effectively from great power competition in the mm. world. So it sort of is like the ugly underside of when people talk about great power competition, when people talk about, um, you know, uh, uh, approving the export of nuclear technologies for that purpose. You know, you don't get there without making people afraid. You don't, maybe you don't get there organically to have that type of a hostile relationship between countries. Maybe it needs a little bit of a nudge. It's funny though. And I, that's where I see what she was doing. And I think it's kind of sinister. It is It is sinister. And and I'm just curious why it, it feels like there's a need to do this because I don't think the average American has a positive view of North Korea anyways. Like I don't think that, I don't think, but I feel like this is actually instigating fear in an incorrect way. Like, I feel like the actual things that she's campaigning against, those have nothing to do with North Korea and their policies. And I feel like North Korea really doesn't have any uh, ability to significantly impact the U.S. in any meaningful way at all. But I mean, like, nobody looks at North Korea and is like, oh, that's a, you know, that's a place that I'd want to go on a trip, right? Like, no, they haven't really done a lot of great stuff for right. them, for themselves. But still, to do that is just hurting. It's 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 instigating fear. It's creating fear. It's hurting people that those bills are actually trying to help, which are the people that are actually living in North Korea that are not the the bad guys in North Korea. They're just the families that are there trying to live their life. Right. Well, I mean, I think in in a sense, the uphill battle that she is fighting is even harder than what you just uh, portrayed. Now, I agree. Most Americans don't. Don't wake up and and say, you know, wow, I, I, I'm really concerned that the North Koreans are coming to yeah. get me. Or I believe that North Korea and the Chinese are subverting our elections. True, yeah. Um, yeah. But I think the problem that maybe she is up against, and I think a lot of people who are concerned about 
um, you know, the, the, the talk about wanting to sort of fan the flames again of these of these conflicts are that the public is, is actually shifting uh, away from being sympathetic to those views. So maybe there's a need to overcompensate. And, and, and I, I would sort of look back at polling data that shows, you know, hey, you know, 70% of South Koreans, you know, have basically said they agreed with President Moon's proposal to end the Korean War. And Americans are, are also, uh, you know, pretty tired of, of, of the endless wars that have defined the past the past you mm -hmm. know, two two decades, you know, nearly you know, nearly two thirds of Americans who are under thirty, you know, believe the US, U.S. should respond to China's rise by decreasing U.S. troop presence in in Asia, um, uh, which is and that number is growing uh, of Americans who who feel that way, um, and you know over uh, and, and a growing number of Americans also think the United States should make greater effort to engage in diplomacy uh, in as as a leading component of U.S. foreign policy. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a that people like her and people who uh, not just stand to potentially profit from great power competition, but genuinely probably believe that these countries are hell bent on destroying not just the United States but apparently South Korea as well. Um, must look at that data. Must look at the trends. Look at the fact that you know, look in the last presidential election, candidates like Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, both of whom were very critical of um, you know, the endless wars that have been waged by the United States. Um, say which we will about either of those candidates. Yeah. You know, they both were consistent with that messaging. Um, I think they see that, and it probably concerns them a great deal. What I where I think things kind of go off the rails is that maybe they feel that the situation is getting so, that they are losing control of the narrative to such a degree that it necessitates some really extreme, frankly absurd, um, types of messaging and, and outright lies. A quick break from this podcast to recommend another podcast that you have to check out. It's called The Product Boss. It's hosted by Jacqueline and Mina. It's part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. If you have a physical product, this podcast is hyper-tailored to you. It's going to help you take your business to the next level. In a recent episode, for example, they spoke about the power of TikTok for product businesses and how to use it to drive sales. And as somebody who is a little new to TikTok, I really learned some great tips for creating content that actually converts viewers into customers. They have a workshop style format that makes it really easy to follow along to take your business to the next level. So if you sell physical products, subscribe to The Product Boss wherever you get your podcast to unlock social media, marketing, and business strategies that create your dream business and then your dream life. Which is which is horrible because as always with with any with any fear, um there's like there's some, you know, like the, sometimes there's uh levels to whether or not that's valid or or not, but I think you have to uncover like the the truth in that particular fear. So for example, like um, in some parts of the world, I'm sure countries don't love the U.S., but other parts, I'm sure the, it's not as bad as we think it is. But when you do things like this, I feel like it polarizes people. It does exactly, it, it, again, like exactly what you said, it, it removes people's ability to think for themselves critically because the facts are so absurd. And it removes proper understanding of foreign policy because the foreign policy that's presented is so abstract and absurd and polarizing that you feel like that you have to go all the way to one end of the spectrum or the other, and that's where you have to sit. Where the truth is probably like somewhere more in the middle, somewhere more moderate, like I'm sure. Today's show is brought to you by 1Password. Now listen, we all have that one friend who's constantly forgetting passwords and needing help to get into their accounts. I have a solution, it's called 1Password. 1Password is the award-winning password manager trusted by millions of users and companies like IBM and Slack to keep logins, credit cards, and other private info safe in an encrypted vault that only you can access. No more sticky notes with passwords or using the same password everywhere. I've been using 1Password for a year now and I can't recommend it enough. It saves me time from having to reset passwords and gives me peace of mind knowing my info is secure. With convenient features like automatic password generation and login autofill, 1Password takes the hassle out of passwords. You can use it on all your devices, iOS, Android, Mac, PC, everything syncs seamlessly. And with top-notch security audits and encryption, your data stays private. So do yourself a favor and check out 1Password today. Go to onepasswordcom Clary and get a two-week free trial. Let 1Password remember all of your logins for you so you can remember what really matters. That's onepasswordcom Clary for two weeks free. I really want to thank Miro, one of the most useful tools. They sponsor this podcast. They are my go-to resource 
when it comes to working remotely and collaborating. They're also great for an office, but let me paint a picture for you. Everyone here is working from home in some capacity. Either we have peers that work from home, maybe we're part in the office, part out. Collaboration can be chaotic. Miro is the ultimate digital whiteboard and visual collaboration platform. You could be a remote team, you could be a creative agency, you could be a solopreneur. Miro allows you to brainstorm, plan, and execute seamlessly. Picture this, you're in a virtual meeting mapping out a huge project with Miro. You can drag and drop sticky notes, sketch wireframes, organize ideas all in real time. You collaborate with your team no matter where they are. This is a game changer. If you are ready to transform your workflow, you have to try Miro today. To show you how powerful it is, I created my own Miro board that you can check out at Miro.com slash success pod. It has a ton of resources for entrepreneurs, but it will also show you all the functionality of Miro. So go to Miro.com or go to Miro.com slash success pod for a ton of resources. Try Miro today. It's going to radically change how you collaborate with your team. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Like, I, like again, I said this before, like, I don't think North Korea like loves the U.S., but I don't think I don't think China's relationship is as bad as definitely as North Korea's. Definitely not. Um, but I do believe that by having these types of campaigns, not only is it serving like a very selfish uh, a selfish initiative, but also it removes people's ability to think for themselves well and critically. And that's yeah. the worst thing about it. it. It basically dumbs down the it dumbs down the message to extreme opposites. Exactly. And you're dumbing it down in a way that's that it's so and I think you just hit, hit the nail on the head here. It's 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 centered on fear. Which is horrible. You, you can't, know, yeah. that when you look at what One Korea Network and KCPAC and, you know, sort of the network of Annie Chan is producing, it's telling people basically that their political identity, their cultural identity, their national identity is all under threat. Which is not true. And it's coming yeah. from the Chinese and the North Koreans. And the only solution is to back, uh, you know, basically, you know, right-wing nationalists in, in both countries uh, and to oppose even the most innocuous attempts at diplomacy. And that's pretty concerning. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's, that, that, th those are some dangerous threads that she's pulling on. And I think that, you know, again, I go back to the election conspiracy stuff. Um, that's really disturbing to see that you know she was pushing, and one Korean network and and other folks in her network were pushing theories about the election in South Korea that was before the U.S. election in 2020, and that that those conspiracy theories were ones that were later present in the United States. And I think it's, you know, we think that a lot of it, you know, it's the United States, we, you know, we kind of think in an insular way sometimes, and we think that these, you know, crazy conspiracy theories about Chinese vote tampering are, um, you know, entirely something produced by and for Americans for the American election, and that that's where it came out of. And instead, you see that, no, some of this was actually going on in South Korea earlier. You know, a lot of these theories didn't just come out of nowhere. I'm not saying that, you know, that, that they were, you know, the same people running them in both countries, but it was absolutely in South Korea before the United States, some of those theories. And she was a very vocal person who was amplifying them. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, it may explain to some degree the role with which, um, you know, those, those became so prevalent here. To give an example, you know, Trump's rally in Tulsa in, uh, which in, uh, in, I guess it was maybe June of 2020, it got a lot of attention because Korean K-pop fans and uh, and teen users of TikTok uh, uh, bought all the tickets. It was really funny. Yeah. The Trump campaign thought that they were like going to have overflow. It was the and it first was like, it was an live empty event arena. they were having. Yeah, yeah. After, exactly after lockdowns yeah. from the pandemic, and uh, and they were like, you know, they they had like overflow capacity in the parking lot because they had like sold out three times over on the arena on the tickets, yeah. and uh, and then like nobody showed up because these K-pop and 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 teens. K-pop fans and teens on TikTok bought all the tickets. It was hilarious. And, you know, even within the Trump campaign, there was, you know, there's emails that leaked out where they were talking about, everyone knows what happened, after the fact, at least. 
except this woman who was publishing, you know, in this letter she wrote to Donald Trump, she was claiming that the uh, that actually this was the work of you know of 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 North Korean and Chinese intelligence. Um, hmm. I mean that type of a mindset like, like really really out of touch Clearly with reality. She's applying that prism to everything that she's seen, and that's and like very very much out of touch with reality, but also very wealthy, and that's dangerous. That's very dangerous. Absolutely. And you know, this, yeah, exactly. So what? I mean, so she has these crazy views. That's fine. You know, there's no shortage of people that probably hold these views, unfortunately. However, this is somebody who put, you know, around a million dollars, probably now over a million dollars into this effort. And that's where it starts to get a little bit scary that, you know, how can this person who can bring these types of resources to bear be essentially a ghost, largely unknown, um, you know, welcomed onto the board of this Virginia, very close to Washington, D.C. based nuclear power company that has former diplomats, uh, uh, former senior military officials on it, uh, involved mm -hmm. in it. You know, that this is kind of disturbing that you can see how the combination of money, some kind of radical views, and frankly, people just not paying a lot of attention uh, to who's funding these things and what they're saying can let someone like that really move in a lot of different circles and start to seriously influence the policy debate. So, so we understand the issue and we understand uh, what what she did and and the, and some of the reasons as to as to why she did it. Um, but what's what's the solution? Like what like you're you're one journalist and as much as you can pick one story at a time and one person to focus on at a time, that's a lot of work for one person. So how do we actually move the needle on this stuff? How do we create more exposure? How do we hold people accountable so that this doesn't this doesn't poison the minds of people and doesn't create that fear? God knows we've had enough of it in the past three years. We don't need any more. So what do we do? Well, you know, I think part of it is exposing ourselves to these stories, reading them, uh, and re recognizing that for every one of these stories that, that we do discover and hear about, there's probably a dozen more. Um, I think it's the idea, and I think people are becoming attuned to the fact that dark money is actively involved in shaping the U.S. political debate. Um, and I would hope that as we do that, it starts to make it something that sort of gatekeepers, as it were, at major institutions as well as in media start to uh, pay attention to. And so I guess there's that, there's that answer, which is that I hope we're facing a cultural shift here. And I think that, you know, for the most part, people's skepticism about the role of money in politics has, has really been helpful um, in, in that respect, that when I write a story like this, I'm not just starting from scratch, explaining how, you know, money, people with moneyed interests may want to influence the political system in ways that are beneficial to them and actually detrimental to the majority of Americans, um, or in this case, people in South Korea as well. So I think there is that quality that the more we see these stories, the more they get reported, the, the more we start to look at this with a critical eye. But I think there's another dimension here. And this is something that I've, I've started to, to, to engage with more. I wrote a report last year about this, which is that you know, we do need to have some ethical standards in the institutions in Washington, D.C. That, that oftentimes shape the foreign policy debate um, and the policy debate more broadly, because most think tanks don't just do foreign policy. Um, and that's that, as we were going back to earlier, that think tanks really need to, to implement certain fundamental transparency standards, which means showing who your funders are would be a major one. Uh, and, and I will say that there has been really good, there's a really good trend with that, which is that I'd say in the past 10 years, the vast majority of think tanks in Washington, especially of the big ones, are disclosing their funding. And that's a huge, huge, huge positive development to be, as I was saying earlier, they don't have, their, their legal status is that they are a 501c3, which is a nonprofit that has no obligation to disclose their funders. So they need to voluntarily do it and they are. Um, second, I would like to see them actually comply with the Foreign Agent Registration Act, which to, in sort of broad terms is a law we have in the United States, which, which says that you know, if you're acting as the agent of a foreign principal, um, you need to disclose that. And what does that, what does that mean exactly uh, though? Justice because that, cause, cause in this particular case, that wasn't the case. She's a resident of Hawaii. Of, of, so she's not even right. uh, a foreign agent. In her case it yeah. is. In her case it wouldn't have mattered. But in terms of the foreign policy debate more broadly, it goes on, it's pretty prevalent, you know, that we have think tanks that are taking foreign money and they produce content that is uh, designed to influence policy 
and often that is um, you know, part of conditional grants given to them by foreign governments. And, uh, and they basically have refused to file, to disclose that under the Foreign Agent Registration Act. So it's also complying with the law, what I think help a lot with, the, with, 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 with how the debate is conducted. And, and, and finally, and I think this does kind of go back to somebody like Annie Chan, the idea of a conflict of interest is something that um, most people understand. And Annie Chan has a big one, which is that she was a board member of a company that stood to benefit financially and it talked about how it would benefit from great power competition, as, she call, as they call it, um, with, uh, with Russia and China. And the work that she was actively involved in producing at One Korea Network and at KCPAC was pretty explicitly about furthering that agenda. You know, pushing out crazy conspiracy theories about the role of China, pushing out the idea that even the nuclear power was part of a solution to that, uh, to that competition and would give the United States an advantage. That's actually stuff that they published at One Korea Network, while never disclosing that the chair of this organization uh, and this news outlet um, had potentially uh, an opportunity to profit from that argument and those policies and policies that would come from it. And I think that starting to have an open conversation about conflict of interest is probably the most important thing we can do. And it's something that um, folks, again, in foreign policy have been anathema to. And I think in other policy areas, there's a little more awareness of it. And I think that this is just a glaring example of somebody who stood to make a lot of money potentially from uh, bringing out some of the worst uh, policies that we could come up with, uh, prolonging a war that a lot of Americans think we need to end, and that a lot of people in South Korea uh, would like to see uh, come to an end as well. I mean, endless war in on the Korean Peninsula is really not in uh, very many people's uh, uh, interest. Course, no. yeah. Maybe, maybe for Annie Chan and her business associates, it was. And and maybe just help me understand. Like I, I probably should have asked this a bit earlier, but when you say that she puts up a billboard in Times Square and she spends about a million dollars, even that seems inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. Like, can you change an entire country's perspective on a particular thing with a, a million dollar budget? Because I, I know how much it would cost to reach that many people repeatedly to actually influence. So it doesn't need to be a lot more than that, or is this significant? In the foreign policy debate, it's significant. Uh, a lot of, and, and I think this is a great example actually of why it's significant. Because a lot of the time that we're talking about, when you think about the budgets that are required to move policy, generally we're talking about policy areas where there's a lot of attention on it, where it's already in the media, where it's already top of mind for a lot of Americans, um, and where there are uh, very well-defined um, uh, parties pushing on both sides. So there is a, that's a very expensive competition to be involved in. Uh, you know, the most expensive example would be American presidential elections where, you know, a billion dollars is, you know, kind of where the budget is headed towards for some of these campaigns. Uh, it's incredibly costly, partially because it's contested. And I think in this example, it's a good example of where, you know, these were advertisements that were targeting specific members of Congress doing so uh, to try to reach out, I think, to Korean Americans and get them to call their members of Congress. How many Korean American members of Congress call any given member on a day with a specific policy ask about a piece of legislation involving uh, video calls with uh, to, to North not Korea? Many. <laughs> not many, not many. You don't need to mobilize a lot of people. Uh, if you can make some noise, if you can scare some people, if you can mobilize them, you're gonna be moving them to press on a member of Congress where foreign policy is definitely not their top priority because most, I don't think there's a single congressional race that is determined by foreign policy. Um, so this is, this, is a, this is not generally a top issue for a member of Congress. It's not generally a top issue for a voter. And if you can get in there and apply a little bit of pressure and make people a little bit uncomfortable there is a, definitely a possibility that you can have outsized impact. So I think one of the reasons that relatively small sums of money can make a big difference in foreign policy is that while objectively the stakes are high, it's matters of war and peace often, um, the number of actors are limited, the target audience is limited, 
the number of people paying attention is limited. And all of that can mean that the total costs don't have to be that high. So that's that's even scarier, to be honest. It yeah. is scarier. Exactly. It makes it just ripe yeah. for people like Annie Chan and people who have pretty radical views on foreign policy to say, hey, you know what? Maybe there's a number of different policy areas that I have an interest in. And if I want to make the biggest bang for my buck that I can, foreign policy might be where it's at. Has has there been any? Has she been held accountable for anything since your story has been published? Has there been any action taken at all? She's been removed. She's been been. She appears to have been removed from the board of the nuclear company. Interesting. Hmm. She, they they were, they deleted her photo, name, and profile from their website. Okay, well that's something. Uh, They're not responding to me when I've asked about what happened. Um, one of the one of the points in the article that I thought was interesting, just to provide a little bit of context about how big this issue is, you mentioned. Uh, Chan appears to be borrowing, borrowing from a well-worn playbook in her efforts to inject money into the U.S. political system to generate personal profits while also influencing elite opinion to steer foreign policy in militaristic direction in East Asia. How often does stuff like this happen for people that aren't aware? It happens often, and it happens at the um, the upper echelons of political funding. Um I think the best example that I point to is, uh, <coughs> excuse me, is um, the late uh, Sheldon Adelson, who was the top, the top funder of the Republican Party. He was so for many election cycles, um, and the coverage of his giving to to again, I'm going to bring in my media criticism here of his political giving was people that there would be every single election cycle. He he and his wife Miriam, who was going to continue to give apparently at a high level in the Republican Party. Um, and the two of them, to be clear, were the biggest funders of not just the presidential races, but also congressional races for the Republican Party. And there would always be these speculations about why do they give their money? And these, they would say, well, you know, hey, they have interest in the gaming industry. You know, they have a, one of the biggest casino firms in the United States and in, and in Macau. And, you know, well, maybe they care about gaming regulation. It's a possibility. An another speculation was that maybe they did it because they... They wanted to get the estate tax lowered so uh, they could pass on more money to their children, which is a possibility. All totally fair speculations for people, somebody who was worth, you know, tens of billions of dollars. But we never talked about, or at least the mainstream media never really gave too much credence to the fact that he had actually been pretty clear about why he gave the money, which was foreign policy. <laughs> um, and it was about, you know, maintaining uh, U.S. support, not just for Israel, but for Israel's you know, right-wing Likud party in some pretty radical respects. Sheldon Adelson had talked about that he thought that the U.S. negotiating position with Iran should be to drop a nuclear weapon on, on, in, in the Iranian desert, as he put it, and tell them that the second one is going to fall on Tehran if they don't give up their nuclear program. Um, these are people who went on to lobby for the, um, uh, for the release of Jonathan Pollard, a convicted spy, um, um, that the U.S. intelligence agencies had been very adamant should not be released, and certainly his, the terms of his parole when he was let out of prison shouldn't let him leave the country. Um, and the Adelsons actively, you know, were very open about the fact they were lobbying for his for his release and for his parole to be lifted so he could leave the United States. He was spied for Israel, and they flew him on one of their private planes to Israel in the last days of the Trump administration. Um, so they did these things openly. You know, they talked about it. And Newt Gingrich, who was a recipient of their money, said, you know, their top issue is foreign policy. And it's, it's about, you know, maintaining U.S. support for Israel. So I think it happens at the top levels of the party. And we saw during the Iran nuclear deal debate in 2015 that, you know, the Republican Party fell in line effectively with where Sheldon Adelson was because uh, he funded every single one of their campaigns. Um, and we saw it in the presidential election in 2016. When Donald Trump, after saying initially that he was not going to take Sheldon Adelson's money and that he was really thought the United States should be a neutral arbiter in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and his main complaint about the Iran nuclear deal was that uh, Iran wasn't buying too many Airbus planes and not enough Boeing planes, uh, turned around and said, you know, after he won the nomination and he needed to shuttle out Sheldon Adelson's money, he reversed course on all of that, hmm. ended up abrogating from the nuclear deal. Uh, very much at Adelson's encouragement. So to go back to sort of where I concluded with that story about you know that this is a time this is this is a, a, a this is a strategy that has been utilized a great deal um, and 
I, I think it happens at the top level of the political process. Again, because there's not a lot of scrutiny about it. People don't pay as much attention as they should to foreign policy. And money talks. Mm -hmm. It works. It really works. And I think people like Sheldon Adelson and to maybe, you know, in a more limited model to looking at somebody like Annie Chan, they know what they're doing. And they know that we see these sums of money and say, how could you shift U.S. foreign policy with it? And they would say, well, because I did. quite easily, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, and again, you look at Sheldon Adelson, I think he shapes the Republican Party. It shaped, shaped, because he, he, he died last year, but he, he shaped the Republican Party's foreign policy platform quite effectively. And people openly, it's not a secret that he did this. Um, to, to, to wrap this up, because I want to go into some rapid fire just to close it out, just to pull it from your insights. But with with your work and and what you've done over your career and some of the things you've exposed and, and investigated, what do you what do you hope will sort of like what do you hope you will accomplish or you'll be able to accomplish in your career? What do you want your legacy to be when people speak about your work in a hundred years from now? What do you want them to say? I want to. I, I, it, it's not a. Uh, um, it's it's not the sexy answer, but there is I no sexy the answer. The answer is whatever is you want it to be. That's important. I I, I, I want to normalize the foreign policy debate. Okay. I think it should be normal. I think we should. Uh, it's okay if it's partisan. It's okay if people have different views. It's okay if people want different outcomes. But let's stop pretending that it's something else. Let's stop pretending that the adults are in the room and they all want the same outcome and they're all pulling in the same direction. And, and the differences are really just differences of how we're going to execute on this. It's not a matter of wanting different outcomes. It's unhealthy. Uh, it gets you bad policy. I think it tends to steer the United States towards uh, not questioning the mistakes that it's made in the past. And frankly, I think it leads toward the United States being involved in endless wars if you're not willing to question yeah. the policies you've pursued. Yeah. No, it's very smart. So I think normalizing that debate, broadening it so you can bring in more voices, getting rid of some of the gatekeepers on it, um, and acknowledging that, hey, there's moneyed interests here. There's foreign interests here. There's people who... Who, who want conflict because it happens to be good for their bottom line. You know, the weapons firms do not want mm -hmm. peace. Annie Chan does not want peace. She is very clear. She's involved in a business that wants a great power competition. I don't think you should outlaw that. But people should but know it. But I think it. we should be able to at least, at least we should know it and we should talk about it, you know, and not pretend that this is a very clean space that's somehow different than other dimensions of, of the U.S. political debate. Uh, if people want to connect with you, where should they go? all the social website, all that stuff. Social is Eli Clifton on Twitter. Uh, check me out there. I publish at responsiblestatecraft.org, which is the publication of the Quincy Institute, which I was involved in founding. I'm very proud of it. It's an awesome think tank that uh, tries to promote policies that will uh, have the United States engaging with the rest of the rest with the rest of the world with vigorous diplomacy instead of with endless war. Um, and, uh, I like to think that we're part of normalizing that political debate. Amazing. Okay, good. All right. Let's do a couple of rapid fire to close this out. So biggest challenge. Uh -oh. that, that yeah, good. perfect. Um, biggest challenge you've overcome in your own personal life. What was it? How'd you overcome it? What'd you learn from it? That's a good one. Uh, the biggest challenge, um, writing things that I thought were meaningful that nobody found interesting. I think that's the, actually the biggest challenge in my work and the thing that made me want to just give up on it sometimes is when you think you have something meaningful to say and you think you've done some interesting research and um, and it's just not something that others see as meaningful. And I, and I know that's sort of a broad thing. Any, it's not specific any creator, anecdote, though, any creator. but it's the biggest challenge yeah. as a journalist yeah. is like, you know, when you feel like you're just banging your head against a wall. How do you how do you keep going? Like what drives you? Where, where do you find that motivation to write the next one? It's the hope that the next one will will redeem that. You know, it's that hope that that you know it's being a gambler to some degree, right? It's that you want that dopamine hit, and it's well, maybe I missed. Uh, maybe I didn't tell the story the right way. Maybe maybe there was nothing I could do, and I just picked the wrong story to tell. Um, but it's it's the it's the wanting to redeem oneself from the stories that that didn't that didn't hit. If you had to choose one person, obviously there's been many, but pick one person who's had a major impact on your career, on your life. Who was it? What did they teach you? Oof. 
one person. Um, I mean, I would have to give credit to to, to Jim Loeb, who uh, you know was the first person to give me an opportunity to do journalism. He was the bureau chief in Washington D.C. at Interpress Service, and he encouraged me to go to those think tanks and not just start writing up the reports and the press releases verbatim and start to dig into who was behind this, who was paying for it, who was financing it. Uh, if you had to recommend a book or a podcast, something that's impacted your life. Mm. A book or a podcast. Um, I would say for, I would, I would, I, I'm far more drawn. I mean, I listen to a variety of podcasts, but I do think the books have, you know, a, a timeless element to them. Um, so I guess I, there's a few that, that, that really do, um, jump out at me. Dark Money is, is just an incredible one. What's it about? Um, just so people know that it, it's, it's about the role oh. of dark money by, by Jane Mayer. Um, and she digs into the, uh, networks that have funded American political debate in ways that, um, that, that shape policy outcomes that affect everyday Americans. Um, and I think it's, uh, I think it's very, very powerful. Um, um, other books that, that have really, that, that, that have done so much for, I think, shaping my worldview, um, would be King Leopold's Ghost, which is amazing. The story of the Belgian Congo, again, of how, uh, decisions made a continent away can impact the lives of so many people, um, on the other side of the world. Um, and, and finally, I, I would, I would point to, to, to Steve Cole's, uh, books, the, uh, Ghost Wars, the Bin Ladens, um, which offer a degree of um, of detail and storytelling about about the endless wars, especially in Afghanistan, but also Al Qaeda and the global war on terror, um, in a way that I, I can't recommend highly enough. You know, that just you you feel like you're. You feel like you're there for, for events that are occurring. You feel like you get to understand the ins and outs of the bin Laden family and about Al-Qaeda and about the U.S. war in Afghanistan uh, in ways that I think if more people had um, had understood it at that level, we probably wouldn't have engaged in in two decades of, of endless wars and failed nation building. Very good. Um, if you could tell your 20-year-old self one thing, what would it be? Piss more people off. It's fun. <laughs> and I love that. For the most part, it, it, it pays, it pays, it pays dividends. Um, you know, the journalism that, that gets you those angry phone calls, the number of times you get told you'll never work in this town again are, uh, are all, are all badges of honor. And, uh, I love those phone calls. And last question. I've learned to love those phone Sorry? calls. I've learned oh, yeah. to love those phone calls. I think calls. you have to have a, I think, I think when you expose people or when you, when you bring things to light, you have to have tough skin. It's not easy. It's not easy at all. Yeah, yeah. And I, and, I, and I used to actually, despite the fact that I love the research and I love exposing things, I used to dread those calls and those emails. And um, and now it's the opposite. Now I look forward to them. Uh, and last question, what does success mean to you? Success to me means getting to do what one loves. You know, you only you only have one life. And um, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that... Uh, I've gotten to do things that I find meaningful and that I really enjoy. Uh, and I think that that's a privilege uh, that probably most people don't don't get to have. Uh, and, you know, every day that I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm just incredibly grateful that I get to do it. Uh, I think a lot of times in journalism, you know, it's uh, there's not a lot of jobs out there. And every time I see somebody that's good at it, get the opportunity, I, I always you know, write them that email that's, you know, hey, you know, congratulations, but, you know, also just, you know, just remember this is, this is incredible. You know, most, most people don't get to do this. I agree. Uh, Good. And it, it is pretty cool when you get to. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.